we don't expect this sort of robotic one-way dictatorship in other relationships. But with dogs, for some reason, there's this expectation that there are these behavioral outputs and that they have to do everything we say and they have to behave in certain ways and that any behavior that is inconvenient or troublesome for us uh, has to be eliminated. And that there's not room to say, hey, like, this is this is actually a sentient being. I'm going to treat their behavior with the same courtesy I would treat the behavior of anybody else. So it's this kind of bizarre dynamic, which isn't actually natural for a lot of people, because all the people I work with love their dogs tremendously. Um, you know, we know that there is research showing that people who lose their pets often grieve those losses more than they grieve losses of people in their lives, right? The relationships people have with their dogs and their pets are profound. The, we're, we currently, I think, don't have the language <laughs> and the norms in our culture to really honor that. And I think dog training as a whole falls really behind in that regard. Um, because what people really want is to have a joyful relationship with their dog. And at this point, I think positive reinforcement-based approach is what allows that to happen in the most compassionate way. School, school for the dogs, for the dogs. School, school for the dogs, for the dogs. So uh, eager to talk to you, happy to have you on the podcast. I have followed you on Instagram for quite a while, and I feel like I kind of know you in an Instagram way. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and I'd like to know you in like a real person way, um, but this is this is the interim, I guess. <laughs> this is great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here and to chat with you. Uh, so, th- well, this is the like second year pandemic way or going on third year of pandemic way of like being at a conference and saying to somebody like, I'd really like to have lunch with you. So I can say, <laughs> will you come on school for the dogs podcast? Um, so perhaps we can just start out. You can um, say your name, what your business is, where you're based. And of course mention that Instagram account. Cause uh, I would love for other people to check you out. Sure. Uh, my name is Jenny Efimova and I am based in Boston. And I offer dog training services in in person and virtual for puppies and adult dogs. Tell me about how you got started with with dogs to begin with. So I think my my entryway to dog training is pretty similar to I think a lot of folks in that I adopted a dog (laughs) who had some behavior challenges that he was struggling with and we were struggling to help him with. Um, he he was originally from Texas. Uh, he came to us when he was a puppy. He was 13 and a half weeks old. Um, you know, he's a mutt. And he had, like I think a lot of dogs coming from rural areas, really struggled adjusting to the city. So that was kind of our big our big challenge with him and happy puppy. So it didn't show up right away. I would say initially we were kind of struggling with what I think most puppy um, guardians struggle with, which is just, you know, 
um, mouthiness, you know, kind of very, you know, house training, very basic things. Although I think he was kind of on the more mouthy side. <laughs> now that I have more context in terms of um, how many puppies I've met and worked with. Uh, so he was really energetic. He was happy. And, you know, we were kind of just busy figuring those things out. But he started to show reluctance walking. So, you know, could be getting startled by something and then immediately wanting to, you know, go back home, not being able to walk more than, you know, half a block. You know, we would walk him in the morning, maybe potty him and he would potty and immediately pull back into the house. So those things were episodic and gradual until they kind of, uh, you know, culminated in him just not wanting to leave the house altogether. Um, when he was roughly six months mm-hmm. old. So that was tough. <laughs> yeah. So what did you do? Well, <laughs> we did a lot of uh, not great things. We, you know, we worked with a couple of trainers. We actually worked with a total of three trainers. And it was only our last, um, the last person we worked with, who was a positive reinforcement based clicker trainer. Um, but we were focusing, first of all, focusing on all the wrong things. We were given advice about you know, not letting him pull on leash. Um, So we were focusing on that instead of, you know, increasing his comfort. And outside, we were focusing on, uh, we were told he couldn't sniff on walks, he couldn't, you know, walk in front of us. Um, So we made a lot of mistakes as a result. And now when you say we... We were told, you mean we were told by like a dog trainer who you felt, yes. who you found on Yelp or whatever, who came yes. to your house so the, and or, looked at your dog and said your dog's issues, are, what, what were the issues labeled by the other trainers? So the first trainer we worked with was actually highly recommended by a family friend. And this person came in to our house and said, your puppy's confident and you're not. <laughs> so he took they took one look at my puppy and said you know your puppy's basically too confident and the, the problem is you need to kind of get that in check okay and I remember that the trainer really tried avoiding using the terms uh, like alpha or dominance but basically made it very clear that we needed to be uh, more assertive um, you know not letting him eat before us not letting him on furniture not letting him have free access to toys I think the demo this person gave us with loose leash walking just basically was dragging our puppy around our dining room table. Mm -hmm. I have actually written a blog on this, so I don't want (laughs) to revisit that too much because that visit was actually quite traumatic because um, this person physically hurt our puppy in front of us. Um, But there was another person we worked with after this individual who we cut ties with that essentially echoed very similar sentiments, um, specifically around walking outside, right? Like if your puppy needs to sniff, that will happen later. But right now they need to learn how to walk on a, on a loose leash. They can't ever pull you, you know, so you, we did a lot of this like red light, green light, stopping, starting, um, which was really frustrating for everybody involved. But again, all of this was taking place at such a crucial time for Larkin where he was um, growing less and less and less comfortable outside. And we were kind of not paying attention to that and really focusing on 
you know, obedience type behaviors, which mm. I think is really common in dog training. Mm-hmm. Um, so it really just kind of snowballed into this place where he, I think, got startled by something. Um, I think it may have been a trash barrel get falling over. It was, it was, a, it was a fairly significant event. But after that, he was basically like, I'm not going outside. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so that was really a moment that was really challenging, I think, is anyone who has ever had a dog that you can't walk outside. And I now work with a lot mm-hmm. of folks like that. It can feel really, really tough. I mean, you can't, you can't, you can't have, you know, and your house, you know, it's not like it's not an adult dog. It's also a puppy who needs to eliminate more frequently. So it was just, um, very challenging. Can I, can I interject just like from my own experience, mm-hmm. um, sure. having, um, started out in a place where it never occurred to me that there was any other kind of dog training than basically what you just described to ending yep, up in sure. a place that I'm in now, you know, down, down, uh, this path for the last 10 years or so of like, Oh, not only, not only is there this other way of training that most people never think about, but oh my God, it applies to so many other things, right? Like, like yes. shouldn't we obvious, like, and, and also how obvious it seems now that like, you know what, like, let's focus on your dog's emotions and feelings before we start making requirements about how your dog behaves in this potentially stressful thing called the streets of a of a major city (laughs) like 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 duh that is what we should be doing (laughs) just like you know I send my daughter to nursery school and you know applaud her for you know getting paint all over herself because I don't care really about what she's doing there at this point right I just want her to like let's work on the emotional part of her just feeling good about being there um, and uh, which we, I guess we, we sort of do it automatically with, with children, or, or I hope that more people do it automatically with children. But I don't, I think we've been conditioned as a culture to not necessarily come at dogs from that same place of like, I don't know what you would call it, grace. I mean, absolutely. I would say, you know, from a personal experience to that point is I was coming from having spent you know, over a decade of my life working with survivors of domestic and sexual violence, that was my work, that was my career, and being really familiar with trauma-informed care and, you know, meeting people where they are and, you know, coming from a space of empowerment. And that was what I was doing for a living and really considered myself a very compassionate, thoughtful person. Mm -hmm. And yet, (laughs) those values really didn't I didn't, I was applying that set of values in areas of my life that unfortunately didn't extend to my dog. Well, ultimately, ultimately, at the time, at the time it didn't. So, and I see that all the time. And I actually have a lot of compassion for people who are starting out in the same way that I did, um, just because of the amount of misinformation out there. Mm hmm. Because then it's a very difficult thing to reckon with, you know. Um, I know people, I know I felt tremendous amount of guilt. And obviously I have pretty, you know, have a good assessment of like what caused and what made the behavior worse. And, you know, you can't really have those moments back. (laughs) So I have a lot of compassion for people who are in the same place as I have been, you know, who have done 
things um, used training methodologies or tools with their dogs that were, you know, that harmed them ultimately and were able, you know, realized what the harm that it caused because, you know, you can't really ever go back. <laughs> you can work and, you know, help your dog. You, there's lots of progress we can make, but I can go back and look at those first days that Larkin spent with us and weeks and months. And, you know, I can't really ever go back and change that. So I just, I have a lot of compassion for people who experienced something similar. Hmm. It's uh, um, an industry specific, perhaps kind of guilt. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I feel that it's interesting. So tell me about the, the trainer that ultimately was able to, to help you with the, tra- the training. Yeah. So we were also working, it was all kind of happening at the same time, but we, some of the training advice we were getting were in, was in the puppy class and some of it was private. So the, the, the ultimate trainer who I worked with, who was a clicker trainer was working with us and I started to implement positive reinforcement based training. And then, but I was still kind of doing other things. (laughs) Like there was still, it was, I was, it was messy. You know, I was still not fully getting kind of what Larkin needed. Um, I wasn't really giving him the stress reduction he needed. I really wasn't really communicating clearly with him yet. And what happened was I actually started hiking with her, um, with uh, our trainer and that was one of the first steps that kind of moved me to a place where I am today, which is when I finally was able to take him on walks in the woods. Mm-hmm. I saw the incredible difference that was making for him, just turning into a different dog, basically, and really coming to life, becoming happy and carefree. And I started to limit his walks in the neighborhood. And really began to kind of give him the ability to be in places where he enjoyed being versus places I thought he needed to be in, like walking around Mm. the block. Yeah. Um, And then at the same time, I was also, I began volunteering with with a rescue and accompanying folks on shelter behavior evaluations. And so I, I wanted to learn more about dog behavior. And I pretty much just immersed myself in learning about dogs, learning about um, animal behavior, learning about behavior science, learning about positive reinforcement. Um, I started to implement more positive reinforcement more systemically with Larkin. And then I took a Karen Pryor Academy um, clicker training foundations class online. And that was kind of where everything just really came together for me where I was like, okay, (laughs) I get it. (laughs) And I saw huge huge differences in Larkin's behavior, in our relationship. Um, And that's kind of what got me on my path to dog training, to becoming a a dog trainer professionally. When we were talking about what to talk about, um, Mm -hmm. uh, (laughs) I I think uh, I was saying that I really liked a post that you did that was about um, why basically why people have leashes that are too short (laughs) and how that's, and how that's like actually 
a major issue. And um, yes. maybe you can you can verbalize sort of what you said in that post in a in a in a way. But um, also, I, I I just wanted to say I thought it was so interesting because it's the kind of um, it seems it seems like such a trite and simple thing like oh you know what people's problem is with walking their dogs their leash is too short like uh like but it's actually such a large concept actually because it's like well what are we using those leashes for like right what is the actual purpose of the leash because i i i like to think ideally it should be a seatbelt right like it should not be it should be there in case of emergencies not to like be yanking your dog around the street and if you really truly are using it as a seatbelt then yeah it could be a really long thing Yep. Um, and, and, and also a very lightweight thing, it, right? Because, like, something could be thin and strong and not going to crack on at all. Absolutely. But anyway, but, yeah. Um, that, that was not exactly what you were saying in your post, but it, it's what it made me think of. But I'd love it if you could share what, what, what that post was about, because it certainly relates to, I think, what you seemed to discover with Larkin. Right. Yes. So it was kind of a reframe, right? Like what's the problem really? Is it that your dog is pulling on leash or that your leash is too short? Because we tend to focus on, you know, the former, right? And it just in general, when it comes to dog behavior, you know, obviously, you know, that we tend to focus on, you know, whatever the behavior we need to stop doing. So like, I need my dog to stop pulling. <laughs> and the thing with the post, what I wanted to get across also was that that reframing for me was also a journey, both personally with Larkin, but also as a trainer. Because for a very long time, when I realized that Larkin did so much better um, off leash or on a long leash and out of the city, it was just a no brainer that that was what I was going to give him, right? Like, why would I put him in a, in a situation that causes him stress and causes me stress when I can do this other thing, um, which is also easy for me to do, you know, so yeah, I might take more time. I might have to drive him somewhere. I might have to plan a little bit more, but I have a dog that's whose behavioral health is improving. Um, I'm enjoying these walks with him. Why wouldn't I do more of that? At the same time, there's still a lot of pressure from on people and from people, I would say, to have dogs who walk, quote unquote, nicely on a six foot leash around the, around the neighborhood. And so as a trainer, when I first started training, I felt like I had to deliver that for people, mm. right? Like if a client called me and said, Hey, my dog's pulling on leash. I felt like, well, okay, let me help you with that. And I would, you know, go over the pieces around like, okay, well, are we meeting our dog, your dog's needs? Are they getting time to move freely? Are they getting time to uh, move their bodies to run? Um, you know, let's, you know, let's focus on that. But it wasn't really a the center of the work. It was more like, yay, this is enrichment over here, but here's let's do leash walking, you know, loose leash walking. So it, it took me a while to realize that, um, you know, I'm kind of practicing this thing here with my dog. I know why I'm doing it. Um, and also, I, I also watched his walking in the neighborhood improve tremendously on top of that, right? Like, here I am taking him not practicing this often, taking him to the woods, taking him on long leashes, he gets to sniff. And then when we do go out into the neighborhood, He's gotten a lot better. He's gotten more confident. I'm able, he's able to eat. <laughs> he's able to engage with me. Um, and I'm not really centering that with my clients as much. And I realized that so much of that was also my hangups around what I thought was expected of me as a trainer, uh, because so many people feel like that's, you know, they have to do that. 
So that was another part of the po the purpose of the post is I kind of wanted to get across that we can't really look at leash walking divorced from meeting our dog's needs because they're so connected. Well, and you well you can't look at any you can't look at any behavior you're training without looking at at, at all the needs and um it's it's such an interesting point of also thinking about what our expectations are and as sort of as a culture when it comes to dogs and questioning those expectations you know we i've i've talked on this podcast before about this guy in my neighborhood who um has an airedale that he always walks on like a super tight leash like the the dog's neck is 6 inches from his hip bone at all times and uh and i i spoke to him once about it and he said something along the lines of i don't you know walking outside is is a very specific thing it needs to be done in a very specific way this is not playtime or enjoyment mm-hmm. time this is walking time and um of course uh i think there are a lot of people who have this sort of uh fixed idea of mm-hmm. what a dog on a leash should look like thanks to some Norman Rockwell type idea of, <laughs> of these things that that is not actually addressing what is right for the dog and also not not necessarily addressing like you said the bigger picture of the fact that um the the bigger picture of like the fact that there mm-hmm. it, you can't divorce that from the rest of the dog's life it is part of your dog's exactly. life exactly yeah and, and 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 I mean that goes for any behavior absolutely but I do think we're especially we especially, there's a special focus on the walking piece. And I've actually heard that mm-hmm. a lot. And I've heard that message around, um, you know, walking is not for sniffing, walking is for exercise or, you know, the idea that it's not for enjoyment. And it's kind of like, well, <laughs> well, what's for enjoyment then? <laughs> like, I mean, dogs are completely under our control, yeah. you know, that they, they get these brief moments of, especially dogs living in cities get these brief moments where they get to go outside and we completely control when, where, and under what conditions that happens. It's such an odd thing, right? To feel like, well, they don't get to enjoy it. And it's also goes completely against what's appropriate for them as a species. Yeah. It's just a a weird thing that gets perpetuated. And I hear a lot of trainers, unfortunately, perpetuate it quite a bit. It, it also um, relates to our uh, our notion that they have to go outside. When <laughs> I think that there are a lot of, I, you know, maybe maybe we're not so far away from a culture that's more widely accepting of the idea of indoor dog bathrooms. I think I think it's <laughs> it's happening based on products that I see that are out there, but um, or or. Um, you know, at least in like crowded urban areas, it's not such a crazy thing. You know, my dog is very sensitive and to have gotten her when we first got her to have gotten her outside enough times on a leash Mm -hmm. on the New York city streets to get her to reliably pee and poop on the sidewalk and only on the sidewalk. I mean, I'm a dog trainer. I know how I could do that, but I don't know. I mean, I certainly knew I didn't have, you know, I didn't have the time to, to, acclimate her to being outside enough to make it worthwhile to put in, you know, it's like a a cost benefit situation. And like, why would I, even if I did, I don't know if that would be the right thing for her. I think the right thing was to give her an alternate place to go. um, Even if that meant, you know, in, in our apartment and then 
working her up, shaping her to being outside. When you were talking about working with the two trainers you were working before you started sort of down the road of clicker training, mm -hmm. that's what I kept thinking was about shaping. You know, we, we, another thing that now seems so obvious is that behavior should be shaped. Ideally that, you know, sometimes that's easier said than done, but now when you describe a situation like you were describing, um, it seems like uh, a shaping mistake. Oh yeah. Um, not getting the dogs used to walking inside before getting them, you know, making these, um, or, or not even getting the dogs used to being outside before raising the criteria of you have to be outside and you have to wear a leash and you have to wear a collar Next and to you me. need to walk yep. in this exact yep. area. <laughs> too many yeah, criteria. Too much, too soon, and just a completely wrong, you know, focus. And um, I mean, we absolutely flooded Larkin. And that that has really profound long-term impacts. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the thing that, you know, we don't, sometimes get to go back and fix it because there's lots of progress I made with him, but there's still areas where he's not going to want to walk. So can you describe what flooding is to someone who does not know that term? Sure. So flooding, I guess in layperson's terms, <laughs> is exposing an individual to a fear inducing stimulus kind of beyond their ability to cope without an ability to escape mm -hmm. um so you know what you know what it always makes what i think of what i think of flooding have you ever seen yeah. the a clockwork orange i have not <laughs> believe it or not <laughs> all right you you're you must go watch a clockwork orange which is I, a, okay. because it's like it's like a dog training uh nightmare movie okay. <laughs> about people uh yeah it's pretty it's pretty uh it's a pretty crazy movie but there's this part in it where they basically like sew this guy's eyes open and make him watch uh, it, it the story the story is basically they're trying to punish this sociopath criminal by with the punishment being that he has to watch scenes of extreme violence over and over and over and over oh god okay again. yeah um, the the <laughs> twist the twist though not to <laughs> spoiler alert <laughs> okay the 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 twist was they play Beethoven music while they're showing him these gruesome videos one after another and he he uh, become through through the magic of classical conditioning the yeah I was gonna say <laughs> uh, <laughs> the music is what ends up um, getting him to go bonkers wow. Okay. Sorry. That's what I think of when a flooding I mean, yes. though is the idea of like someone's eye, eyes been being toothpicked open. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, and we do that with puppies a lot um, mm -hmm. and dogs in general. I think flooding is fairly common. Um, you know, just the idea of like get them, they should get used to it mm -hmm. or they will get used to it approach mm -hmm. um, is flooding, right? Like, you know, when, when, when an animal doesn't have an, an opportunity to opt out, or move away, um, and when they're exposed to something that they can't handle, um, I think that happens inadvertently. Also, by the way, I mean, like, not that we were planning on it, but even in small ways, it happens inadvertently. Of course, um, very often, yeah. Well, I mean, isn't isn't so much dog training like that? I mean, that's why like the idea of pure positive doesn't exist because <laughs> you can't. There's your dog is going to be learning from things even when you you're not thinking that you're in the classroom. They're always learning. Exactly.
Uh, wow. So you, it's, it's so interesting that, that you went from this one career um, to another where it sounds like there was so much, so much overlap that it, that you did not see uh, at the get go. Yeah. Would you, would you put it that way? Yes. Um, and also a lot of the work I used to do involved advocacy work. So I did a lot of education and outreach. Um, and I feel like that also intersects with what I do now. Because when we are teachers, when we're teaching, when using positive reinforcement-based training, and I know that certainly not every trainer wants to see themselves that way or chooses to, which is, of course, perfectly fine. But I do find that advocating for positive reinforcement-based approach and you know educating more people about it is just as much of the work as working with dogs and people for me. Well, and you, you do a really great job, I think, on, on Instagram um helping people understand why it's so important do you feel like you're seeing things change i do think things are changing um it's hard sometimes because we exist in an unregulated industry where there's so much bad stuff <laughs> And some of that bad stuff has a huge space and in an in, in online, in on social media and online that sometimes it can feel very kind of like there's no end to it. But I do think that more and more people are open um, to positive reinforcement. And I actually believe that for a lot of people, there is a relief that comes with realizing that they don't actually have to have this extremely controlled militant kind of relationship with their dogs. Like a lot of people I work with and a lot of people I talk to on online who message me have either experienced trainers and felt uncomfortable with a training approach or feel relieved that they don't have to make their dog heal. Um, I know I actually felt relief. I know my partner felt a lot of relief. He was like, this sucks. <laughs> like, why do I have to do this? This isn't fun. Um, so people feel, I think there's a, people bring dogs into their homes because they want to have a relationship with an animal of another species with a dog and they want to love them and they want to have the, the joy that comes from that connection. They want to cuddle their dog on the couch. They don't want to feel bad because their dog sleeps in their bed. They like when their dog jumps up on them to say hi, they don't care. They may, they share their food with their dogs and a lot of dog training, sort of traditional uh, punitive sort of minded dog training shames people for that. Oh yeah. And there is a lot of, um, you know, people are like, well, my dog sleeps with me. I know that's not okay. I hear that all the time. Um, the messages they're getting is it's their fault. If their dog's misbehaving, it's their fault. They're not giving the dog enough structure. They're not setting firm boundaries. So there's a lot of shame and blame that goes along with that. They're letting the dog think the dog is boss. That's right. Yes. So there's a lot of that happening and it doesn't feel good. You know, it just, it doesn't feel good. And there is, I believe that a lot of positive reinforcement based approach really opens the door for people to really enjoy their dogs and gives them permission to like, yes, you can have fun with your dog. <laughs> um, and yeah. And that, and saying, you know what, you're also like your dog can be your hobby. 
your dog is not a piece of furniture or a robot that needs to behave in a specific way. Uh, yes. And, uh, and shouldn't be a bother and is lucky for whatever it can get as far as scraps go of your life, but your dog can be the main event. Yep. <laughs> um, and that doesn't need to be something that's silly. It could be something that's beautiful because it's you devoting your time, energy, money, effort towards another living being, mm-hmm. which, you know, someone else could choose to be putting that towards their motorcycle. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're getting to see the the enjoyment of another being enjoying life. <laughs> What's so beautiful about positive reinforcement dog training is that it's, it's it's fun if you're doing it right. It should be fun for you and it should be fun for the dog. Um, exactly. That's the goal. And if everybody is operating in a way of like, hey, this is a fun, good, cool thing to do, <laughs> um, it's it's a lot more it's, – it's, it's a feedback loop that feels good. And some people can get that feedback loop from, you know, like I was saying, you know, from – from from cars or um, in other inanimate objects that they devote their their um, their time and um, resources towards. Well, or, or we, we've well, done with another animal. Go ahead, sorry. Right. No. No. Well, that's the thing. Kind of going back to you know things that are intuitive versus not intuitive for us with dogs. There are ways in which we conduct our relationships, whatever those relationships might be, with other you know human animals. <laughs> that are that you know where we communicate it's a reciprocal communication you know we don't expect you know if i say my you know, if i'm in a room and if my partner's in a different room and i call his name i don't expect him to show up within in under a second you know that he can you know he can say one second you know, i'll be right there you know we don't we we don't expect this sort of robotic one-way dictatorship in other relationships, but with dogs, for some reason, there's this expectation that there are these behavioral outputs and that they have to do everything we say and they have to behave in certain ways and that any behavior that is inconvenient or troublesome for us uh, has to be eliminated and that there's not room to say, hey, like this is, this is actually a sentient being. I'm going to treat their behavior with the same courtesy I would treat the behavior of anybody else. So it's this kind of bizarre dynamic, which isn't actually natural for a lot of people because all the people I work with love their dogs tremendously. Um, You know, we know that there is research showing that people who lose their pets often grieve those losses more than they grieve losses of people in their lives, right? The relationships people have with their dogs and their pets are profound. We currently, I think, don't have the language (laughs) and the norms in our culture to really honor that. And I think dog training as a whole falls really behind in that regard. Um, Because what people really want is to have a joyful relationship with their dog. And at this point, I think positive reinforcement-based approach is what allows that to happen in the most compassionate way. That's, that's so well said, Jenny. Um, really, I think about how there are so many animals that have symbiotic relationships, friendships. I mean, look at, uh, I mean, forget just animals, but fungi and plants. We think of ourselves as 
week if we need need uh, or need, or enjoy um, the affection of of dogs as a culture. Somehow, it's still considered kind of. Um, uh, I, I, last week on on the podcast, I read I read from um, Mary Poppins uh, a chapter okay. a chapter she wrote about uh, a chapter in that book about. Um, about this dog and there's, you know, the, it was written in the 1930s, but the, the, the dog lover is this caricature of an overbearing old, old lonely woman who treats her dog like a child and spoils him. And I feel like that's sort of one, one stereotype our culture has of dog ownership. Um, and another stereotype is, or stereotypes maybe the wrong word, but, but coupled somehow with this idea of like, there's a right way for a dog to behave and there's a, a right way to be like a non-indulgent, no nonsense dog owner. I don't know. It's like it's like we all need like a mental cleansing. <laughs> for for me, it, I, it's 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 looking at accounts like yours though, where I feel like oh, you know, I I think there's more and more people out there who are really good at helping sort of clear away the static and help people think about what. Um, what their individual dog needs and not just impose these sort of cultural standards um, that are somewhat arbitrary. Do you know what I mean? Yes. I mean, the spoiling piece. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I don't, I don't have children, um, human children, but I think there's also a lot around that as well. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, this idea that, you know, showing, showing compassion, showing kindness, showing understanding, not reaching for punishment is spoiling. You know, mm-hmm. there's like that part of, you know, treating another living being with, um, and I'm sure there's probably, you know, spoil is like a, a label, right? We all have different definition of being, of spoiling, but I think that's a big, big kind of also shaming <laughs> tactic that gets, um, get lo- gets lobbed at people who choose to treat their dogs with kindness. Right, right. So it's like this. It's like there's almost this caricature of like, oh, if I don't, if I'm not the dominant dog owner with a dog who's healing perfectly by my side, yep. am I therefore then going to be the the indulgent uh, dog owner treating their dog like it's a a miniature yep. uh, or, yep. or a, fur, a furry human? Yeah, yeah, a little baby in fur. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I I am a parent, and I feel like it informs completely the way that I, I mean, being a dog trainer Mm -hmm. completely informs the way that I parent. There are definitely parallels. I have to say, um, I've actually, I follow a lot of positive parenting accounts Mm -hmm. um, because there's so many parallels. And it's interesting for me, um, just because from the standpoint of behavior, uh, I think we're all, we all learn the same way. It would make sense that children would benefit from positive reinforcement and the same processes would apply, right? Yeah. You know, the same impacts of punishment, the same impact. I mean, of course. Um, yeah. So I think we, I think we also struggle with, with that with kids as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and maybe, maybe an upside of many people getting dogs uh, before they have kids is figuring that out <laughs> before you're, you're figuring it out with, with a kid. I actually had I had a I had a few clients who had expressed that the tools they have gained working with their dog using positive reinforcement based approach has changed how they parent. Mm. 
Um, and in one case, it, it, my clients were new parents. And so it informed how they were parenting, which I think is really beautiful. It really is this sort of, um, there's this quote by Suzanne Clothier that I'm not going to uh, quote correctly, <laughs> but uh, part of it says that uh, a life lived in a relationship with an animal allows us to become both fully more human, more fully human and more humane. And I thought that's such a beautiful thing, right? Just that this this connection with an animal of another species gives us this opportunity to expand our circle of compassion and actually become more humane in other areas of our lives, if we take that opportunity, right? Um, if we do, <laughs> not everyone does, <laughs> but it is a profound opportunity that could really extend to how you treat your your children, how you treat others. I know for me, I've become a lot more aware of how I'm responding to people around me and centering more positive reinforcement. And it's improved my life immensely. So. Yeah, it's, it is profound. And uh, it's, I, I think it's also uh, positive reinforcement. Like we kind of use that as a shortcut, but it, for mm-hmm. referring to something even larger than that, which is kind of like we've been talking about, like questioning expectations, right? Questioning mm-hmm. questioning how we can in- arrange a situation, an environment, space, time, energy, you know, like ener- energy as in like physical exertion. Like, ha- like what can we do to set a stage for success and how can we set cri- cri- criteria that um, can be met? And then how can we um, work at shaping those behaviors? Yes. And how do we see, how do we reframe how we see mistakes? Mm -hmm. Um, And what is a mistake? (laughs) And, you know, how do we reframe when things happen that don't go our way? Mm -hmm. Um, There are lots of kind of in our culture, I mean, there's lots of different toxic elements around like, you know, pushing yourself and, you know, if you just work hard enough and um, mm-hmm. the, these, you know, a lot of self-blame, internalizing, um, blaming ourselves. I think when we become, you know, another positive is when we become kinder and gentler to others and we start to see behavior um, differently, we may also become a little kinder to ourselves, mm-hmm. right? We might set ourselves up for success a little more. <laughs> we might, you know, right? Yeah. Like we suggest criteria better for ourselves. We might be able to look back at something that didn't go well and not feel so much blame or shame. Um, but you know, what's nice <laughs> about, about seeing the world as like, as you know, I, in this kind of way, I mean, I don't, I call call it religion if you will. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this uh, way of of seeing the world. I mean, which I, by the way, I think gets misunderstood a lot as like, oh, well, you mean just like rewarding things that you like and seeing the bright side of the th- of side of things, <laughs> right? Like people think like, oh, you use positive reinforcement in your life, you just might go around like, yeah, you know, with like a shit eating grin all the time until you know yeah. give people give people candies when they're nice. Like, well, no, it's it's more complicated than that. It's more, it's more nuanced than that. It's interesting though, to, 
that it comes from something as, um, you know, here you and I have had our way of the world shifted thanks to the fact that we had to get our dog to pee or poop outside. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes. Well, you know, kind of going back to your question about, you know, do I see things changing? One thing that I see that's really beautiful is that, um, you know, there is a community of folks um, online and in other places, obviously, um, but I'll just give Instagram as an example, where people who are dog guardians, um, or maybe like their hobby trainers, or, you know, their trainers, who have come to positive reinforcement, and it transformed their lives so much, there's they, they want to shout it out from the rooftops. <laughs> um, that was kind of yeah. my piece, like when I was deciding like how did I want to show up in, in 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 an online space is I talk about positive reinforcement so much because I genuinely love it and believe in it and I think so many people feel the same way. Um because when you really see the difference, especially if you're crossing over, it's so profound and it really changes your life and your in your, your relationship with your dog and your dog's life that people are thrilled, they're excited. And I think that's this that's a beautiful thing and I love seeing that. It's um it feels very contagious in a very good way. And I'm Completely, never not excited yeah. to, to, to talk to someone about it. Yeah. Um, and I'm still where my dog has come to and what our relationship is like and how much I enjoy him, how much I enjoy every time, every moment with him. And it doesn't mean they're always perfect or we don't have challenges, but just the fundamental emotion that is underneath mm-hmm. all my interactions with him is joyful and so, and I think about that every day. So, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> what I was going to say before is, is this way into looking at the world, uh, you, like what you said can be so, uh, so helpful to dealing with our, ourselves and our own ways of treating ourselves and existing in the world with ourselves. Um, I feel like so much of psychotherapy though, is kind of like inward facing, like, you know, look, looking into your own brain in order to fix yourself, um, mm-hmm. where I feel like this approach of dog training of, you know, good dog training, positive reinforcement based dog training really is, is sort of thinking about how our actions can affect others in the case of being a dog trainer, how our actions can Absolutely. affect our clients, how our actions can affect our dogs. For me, that's led to, you know, how can my actions affect my kids, my employees, um, and certainly I, it does it help my own mental state. Yes. But, but it does it from a sort of pleasantly, um, action step, ac- action sort of oriented way. Yes, absolutely. Well, Jenny, I've so enjoyed talk to you, talking to you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for all that you do on Instagram. We didn't really get to talk about the training that you've been doing uh, with clients online, which maybe maybe could be a conversation for another day because I feel like I could probably okay. talk to you for a long time. Um, but before we but before we we part uh, before we part, I I wanted to ask you what you would recommend to someone who is maybe listening and maybe thinking about becoming a dog trainer trainer themselves, a professional dog trainer, someone who's caught caught the bug that you and I caught, um, or <laughs> someone who has seen success maybe with their dogs um, and want to spread, spread the word, um, what would you say would be a good first step? Uh, would it be a, a book or a practice or, or something? Oh, good question. <laughs> um, I think books are great. I feel like that was where I started. 
online classes. There's lots of places that um, offer online classes that, you know, range certainly in their, um, you know, how comprehensive they are and in price. Um, that's a good option for online learning. Um, if somebody wants to become a trainer, I think sh uh, assisting or shadowing another trainer is a really, really helpful step. Um, because there's definitely a difference between learning about behavior and even working with your own dog to then l working with other dogs. Before, I would say someone would pursue like a formal certification program. Um, I chose a program that included an education component. So I, I went through Karen Pryor Academy, which included a, um, you know, an going through the an education um, program and then being certified. Um, I would say assisting a trainer or shadowing a trainer is really, really helpful because there is this, uh, diff there's a difference between learning about behavior, learning about dogs and working with your dog to then working with other people's dogs, right? And other people. So uh, being able to handle different dogs, work with different dogs, assist a trainer. Um, I think actually volunteering in a shelter, volunteering with a rescue is really helpful because um, you are then seeing dogs in many cases that have been surrendered. Um, you're going to see lots of different behaviors <laughs> and that's really, really helpful too. So, um, and then deciding, you know, if you wanted to pursue it formally, um, to go for a you know, really good reputable program, if you can, um, there's lots of options there. You can learn more about Jenny at dogminded.com. And if you are on Instagram, you should absolutely follow her account at dogminded. Her posts are full of so much useful information. Her content is wise and soulful and clear. If you like this podcast, make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Of course, you can also follow us on Instagram at School for the Dogs. We do a special giveaway there every Friday. Today, we are doing a giveaway of a FitPaws canine fit bone dog training balance platform. Go check it out. If you are looking for awesome stuff for your dogs, do make sure to check out our online store, storeforthedogs.com, where we carry a really great selection of treats, training tools, and enrichment toys. Shop small and uh, support good dog training while you're doing it. One of my favorite things to do with dogs is to watch them figure out how to problem solve. I like watching them figure out how to navigate the world that we're asking them to live in and to have fun while doing it. At School for the Dogs, we specialize in selling enrichment toys for dogs. These are also sometimes called work-to-eat toys. They can help a dog refine their problem-solving abilities, can help them burn off physical and mental energy in a way that is not destructive. It can help slow down their eating, and it can also just help them enjoy themselves. I kind of think puzzle toys might be the canine equivalent of playing Fortnite or doing the crossword. School for the Dogs' new Brainy Box is a monthly subscription box where every month we will send you one of our favorite canine enrichment toys along with one of our favorite types of treats. You will only receive things that have been vigorously tested by our staff and student body. Sign up today at schoolforthedogs.com slash brainybox. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your first month or your payment for the full first year when you use the code 
Brainy Box, 15.